Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to join me again as we continue our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. I'd like for you to find 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and when you find the third chapter, if you'd find the 16th verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, if you have an app on your phone that you typically use, I would encourage you to do so, or if you have a printed copy of God's Word, as I prefer, find 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17, only two verses this morning. I don't know if you remember reading the children's classic, Are You My Mother? You may have grown up with this book. I certainly grew up with this book. The book is the story unfolding of a baby bird who hatches and his mother is not in the nest. And we know from our own understanding of nature that in the animal kingdom, very much like in our world as humans, the first thing that happens after the hatching of a little bird or the birth of a baby is that there is this instantaneous, momentous moment of bonding with the mother. And since the mother is not there in this fictitious tale, the baby bird goes out on a journey looking for his or her mother, are you my mother? And if you flip the pages through the book, he asks a cow, are you my mother? And the cow says, I am a cow. How could I be your mother? And then he goes and asks a large earth-moving equipment, piece of equipment, are you my mother? And it makes a loud noise and scares him. And he asks a kitten, are you my mother? And he goes through a lot of animals. And then finally, as the tension of the story increases and our little hearts are breaking for this little bird, his mother flies back in and he knows, you are my mother. And there's something about appreciation. Today is really a day of appreciation. It is a day where we set aside to say, as if we shouldn't do it every day, we appreciate those incredible women in our lives who carry the title of mother. And whether or not God allows you the privilege and the opportunity to deliver children into this world, every woman mothers someone. Motherhood is one of those things that is beautiful, it's tender, it's kind, and our lives would be deeply lacking were we not gifted with the privilege and the opportunity of having mothers. So we appreciate them. Some of you have already presented a card or some flowers. You have picked up something this week. Maybe you have plans to cook mom lunch or to call mom. Surely many of you will sit around a table today and the conversation will reflect on mothers of past generations who may not be with you anymore and your appreciation of them. The Oxford Dish Dictionary defines appreciation this way, recognition and enjoyment of the good qualities of someone or something. You know, today's the day you celebrate mama's good qualities. Now, mama, we know you're not perfect, but we're not talking about your faults today. The second part of the definition in the English language I think is equally important. A full understanding of a situation. I don't know, ladies, if you remember, for those of you who are mothers, when you first became a mother, it is a beautiful thing, it is a wonderful thing, it is an exhausting thing. No one can quite prepare you for it. I never have, nor will I ever become a mother, but I remember becoming a father thinking, what in the world have we done? 
And I, I remember once walking Ty, our firstborn, who will be recognized next week in our senior class. He's finishing high school now. But I remember in our little seminary apartment just outside of the New Orleans Seminary, about five blocks from the campus, there was a small apartment there. And Laurel had given birth, not in the apartment, but Laurel had given birth. And we had brought Ty home, and we were there for about a week. We spent about a week in Alabama for Christmas, and we moved here. When I showed up to be your pastor almost 19 years ago, he was three weeks old. But I remember him screaming one night. He screamed a lot as a baby. I remember walking him on the patio of that apartment. Surely my friends and my seminary colleagues appreciated me walking him up and down the breezeway there as he screamed bloody murder, thinking, Lord, I'm not ready for this. Can we send him back? I didn't fully appreciate all that was involved. Our text today is not a Mother's Day text. Sometimes pastors will pause and preach a Mother's Day sermon. My knee-jerk reaction usually is to keep preaching the text in the series that I am in. For if we stopped for every holiday, we'd never get through a book. It took a decade to get through Jeremiah during a pandemic. And so I find myself in a text today not about motherhood, but definitely about appreciation. I told you when we began this book several months ago that in a world full of organizations and movements and agendas, it's never been more important for the church to be the church. This was epitomized again this week as our nation re-entered what has been a 50-year debate over abortion rights. And believers now, like never before, have the opportunity to see who believes God's word or who doesn't. Who trusts him or who does not. And when we think about that, then we ask ourselves the question, what is the role of the church? I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about a particular church. I'm talking about the people who were called by God to serve and to love him. And then they organized themselves in local congregations. What is the role of the church? When we think about the role and the importance of the church, we might be Strengthen to remember that like a child needs his mother, believers need the church and the world needs the church. I, I do not argue with people on social media. I have never won somebody to Christ by being rude to them in the public square. But when I read so many who are so misguided about so much and they make it so public, one of the questions I ask in my heart is, what would look different in their life if they were in a solid church? Not a perfect church. No such thing. Not under a perfect leader. Other than Christ, they don't exist. But a church that loved, encouraged, strengthened, and gave people the truth of God's word. This is what Paul had given his life to. He'd given his life to planting churches and then to strengthening, encouraging, and sometimes disciplining churches. 
Corinth needed all those things. In fact, by the time we get into the third chapter, Paul is dealing with a group of people who are in the church. Many are in Christ. These are saved folk. These are church members, and they've gotten their view of church and leadership all wrong. And the mission and effectiveness of the church is being threatened. And so Paul does a lot, and we have preached on that over the last few weeks, and this is what we do. We walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, and if you're a guest of ours, all of the sermons previous to this one are available if you wanted to join and catch up and be edified by the proclamation of God's Word. But we find ourselves here in verses 16 and verse 17 with Paul simply closing out a thought about the church and saying, I want you to appreciate how rich, how good, how important, how serious your view of the church should be. You and I live in a casual, transactional culture. Basically, I bounce where I want to bounce. I go where I want to go. We go sometimes, not all the time. I go here, I go there. And yet Paul is saying, that's not the way our church life should be. How many of you know that today you'll think about the importance of your mother more? I will. I love people better when I pause and appreciate all that they've done for me. In fact, this is not a sermon about reconciling a broken relationship, but one of the things that I've always tried to do in my life when I'm struggling with someone, when someone has hurt me or I have hurt someone, I've been on both sides of that, I I have been failed and I failed people and you've done the same, and when there is hurt or tension between me and a person, one of the good exercises as ascribed in Scripture is to take a step back and to value that person for a moment, to take a moment and appreciate them. It's great in marriage as well when things are building to a boil and there's a tension and words are said and and venom is spewed. Sometimes it's good to hit pause. Jump in your truck and take a ride. Go get on the treadmill and run. Go somewhere and get your mind off of everything else and then just take inventory. What does she mean to me? What has she given me? What has she done for me? And when you begin to, I seem to remember a little song, count your blessings name them one by one, all of a sudden the tension that is between you and that person does not disappear, but you're able to put it in perspective because you've taken a moment just to appreciate who they are and what they have done. Since my wife became a mother, one of the messages of parenting in our home is the importance of gratefulness. All of us have children with strengths and weaknesses, with limitations, with challenges, but I want to raise a generation of children that are grateful because nothing sickens me more than to meet someone who's ungrateful, who's not grateful for what God has given them and what he has done for them. If anything, the next two verses I'm about to share with you very briefly should increase your gratefulness and appreciation for the church. And the reason that this matters is because I'm going to ask you two simple questions at the end of this sermon. In fact, I'm going to tell you what they are before I ask them of you. One, do you truly appreciate the Lord's church? Two, does your church appreciate you? Is your appreciation and commitment and love for your church 
so rich, so consistent, so characterized by commitment that your church is blessed because of your presence. Let's read those two verses together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Paul says something we're going to come back to in a few weeks. Do you not know? Now, this phrase in the original language translates rather well. It's a rhetorical question. It's as if you're looking at someone saying, don't you realize? How about this one? Have you not forgotten or have you forgotten? Do you not remember? It's as if Paul is saying, I want to re-remind you of something you ought to be reminded of because I know you're mindful of it. This is not Paul giving new information. This is Paul saying, I want you to appreciate the beauty and the gravity and the importance of the church, and I want you to do it from what I've told you before, which is why he says, do you not know? And then look how the two verses fall out. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, there are portions of the Bible which speak to individual believers as the temple of God. That's a good thing. In fact, when we care for our bodies, we're taking care of the temple that God indwells. That's not a bad thing. I had a friend of mine, he's a preacher, really big fella. He said, if my body's the temple of God, I'm a mega church. (laughs) This is not that passage, though. Paul here is not speaking of the individual body of a believer. You all possess one. It's what you used this morning to come into our service. He's talking about the local church there in Corinth. And really what he stresses is the appreciation of four pillar truths about the church. I want to give those to you very briefly. It's important for us, number one, to appreciate God's possession of the church. The church doesn't belong to you or me. It belongs to the Lord. Paul says it this way in verse 16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Notice the possessive phrase, God's, apostrophe, S. You belong to God's temple. And interestingly, He ends verse 17 with the same phrase, the concluding phrase of verse 17. And you are that temple. Now, this is very important, and yet I think sometimes translation is lost on us. Remember where he's writing. He's writing to ancient Corinth. Corinth had had an amazing, rich history of worship. In fact, hundreds of years before Paul, Corinth was a bustling center of religion. It had been destroyed when the Romans conquered the area, but then the Romans had rebuilt Corinth to its former glory. Had you walked through the streets of Corinth when Paul walked through the streets of Corinth, you would have seen the temple of Apollo on the hillside. The ruins of that temple are still visible today. You may have met someone that worshiped at the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek god of sex. It is said that that temple had so much money and wealth from the community that it employed hundreds of temple prostitutes used in the worship of the temple of Aphrodite. There were even sayings in the ancient world that not every man ought to go to Corinth, and the history of that saying was that many men went and they left broke. 
because they spent all their money in temple worship. I'll let you make the connection of what temple worship is if you go to the temple of Aphrodite employing hundreds of temple prostitutes. So temples were everywhere and mythological gods were everywhere. So every person in Corinth would have understood the terminology that a god deserves a temple and that the temple's architecture and the temple's personnel and the temple's decor ought to reflect the characteristics of the god that is worshipped there. And yet Paul flips it on his head and he says, wait a minute, you Christians, you're the temple." It's not a building, it's not a place, it's you. Paul's counterpart, Peter, picked up on this. I shared this last week. You yourselves, like living stones. See, the reason those stones are still standing of the ancient temple of Apollo, the Apollo, by the way, was the Greek god of music. This is why you have shows today like Showtime at the Apollo, the Apollo Theater, named after that god, the Greek god of music. You yourselves, like living stones. See, the old ancient ruins of Apollo are there because they're dead stones. They have weathered time because they're inanimate objects. They're large stones carved from the earth. Peter says, and Paul says, that's not how God's building his church. He does not build his church with brick or mortar or stone. He builds it with people's lives. Those precious children that were just brought out in front of us at this point have no knowledge of the Lord. Some of their younger, their older siblings may begin learning about him, but a baby does not come into this world fully grasping or understanding the truth of Scripture. It is the job of the parent and the job of the church to teach them that. But it is our heartfelt desire, it certainly was my heartfelt prayer, that every one of those precious little girls and little boys who are babies now and very much still growing. One was two weeks old just in front of you a few moments ago. It is our prayer that as they grow in their understanding and knowledge of the Lord and of their own sin and of his grace and of the beautiful sacrifice of Jesus, that they themselves would place their faith in Christ through repentance, receiving his grace And when they do that, they become a living stone, a piece of the temple of God. Peter would say, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So before you ever choose a church, before you ever make a commitment to a church, before you ever think about your relationship to your local church, take a step back and remember it's not yours. It's the Lord's. It belongs to him. You can be served by your church, but you weren't saved by your church. You can be loved by your church, but your church can't give you heaven. Only God can do that. Your church can walk with you through the deepest, darkest nights of your life, but your church offers no solutions to solve your problems apart from the grace of God through his word and the power of his spirit. It belongs to him. Now, you know what that means, though? Ownership determines how we treat something. If I'm handed something very valuable that is owned by you, I treat it with that great value. My wife drives a 12-passenger van. It's like I live with a UPS delivery woman. It is large and ugly. It's a big black box 
with a tiny pretty woman coming down the road. And when she opens the door, it looks like a circus. They just keep coming out. I said, honey, because they kept coming out of you. <laughs> My boys had prom last night. They said, Dad, can we borrow the van? <laughs> Wanted to make them a little party bus. So they cleaned it up and decorated it and took six couples to prom in a 12-passenger homeschool Southern Baptist party wagon. <laughs> now, how do you think I told them to treat that van? With care, because it does not belong to them. Would God be proud of how you're treating his church? Would God be proud that you view your local church? If you're a guest of ours and you're committed to a sister church, we rejoice in that. We want you to stay committed there. Would God be proud that you view it as his possession and you are a part of it? Or does it just make your weekends when nothing else is coming up? Is it a point of conviction because you know I'm not connected as I need to be, but I've got some baggage, I've got some history, I've been up, I've been down. And in all of those things, I would encourage you to imagine yourself standing before the Lord and him asking you, sister, brother, what did you do with my church? Secondly, you need to appreciate God's presence in the church. Look at verse 16, the second phrase. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Again, go back to ancient Corinth with me. Had you gone into an ancient Corinthian temple dedicated to one or more of the Greek gods, guess what you would have found when you entered the temple? You would have found idols and statues, replicas of that God. It is a normal and natural thing for a world of false religions to make before themselves graven images in order to worship. Remember how much trouble God's people would get in when they began to create a graven image? Did you notice no statues of Jesus when you walked into this congregation? In fact, in most Christian churches, the best you'll find is an empty cross. It's not that it's wrong to artistically betray the Lord. I grew up with those little illustrated Bibles that had pictures of Mary and Joseph. There's nothing wrong with artists using their ability to represent images that are given to us in Scripture. But it is very, very important, and it is very serious to the Lord that we never mix artistic representation with images that become an object of our worship which is why the Christian church, the Reformed church, the evangelical church, often at best will have nothing more than an empty cross saying the God we worship is here, but he's not here in an inanimate object. He's here in the lives of the people he indwells. The spirit of the Lord is in this place because the Son of God is on his throne, which is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So Paul's saying the world has its idols. 
We are God's temple. He needs no idols. He needs no edifice, no architecture. There's no beautiful thing that the man's hands can make which will contain God. He says, I will make my dwelling among them. Paul is quoting God. And will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Did you hear that phrase, will walk among them? I don't know if it reminds you of something, but it reminds me of something. When did God begin his walk with man and woman? Right after he made them. In fact, the Bible tells us it was in the cool of the evening when God re-entered the garden as he's walking with Adam and Eve that he realized they were hiding from him due to their sin. And so redemption has done nothing but restored what sin destroyed. Daily, permanent intimacy with the Lord. This is why Jesus, just before his death, said these words in John 14. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let me just add right there. Do you know why he has to do that? Because I forget. Because I plow into my life and I will immediately begin straying from God's will because self and flesh are always at hand. I I don't need a distant God. I I want a glorious God, but I don't want him to just be on his throne in heaven. I need him near me, with me, and in me, or I don't have a shot in pleasing him. This is why Jesus says, when I leave, I'm going to send the helper. Two chapters later in John 16, he says these words, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So the Holy Spirit gave the apostles the Word of God, and the Word of God with the Spirit of God gives the child of God the wisdom he or she needs. And when you add up the sum total of every person in this room with the Holy Spirit and they make a commitment to one another to walk in the love and the fear of the Lord in their community, you get this beautiful thing called the local church that is filled with people attempting to honor Christ and we do it better together than we ever could alone. This is why when Paul prayed to the church at Ephesus, Paul prayed these words to the church, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. But how? Just by singing a song or hearing a sermon or reading a devotion. Those are all important. But the real strength of the Christian life comes in what Paul says. I've supplied an underline for emphasis. With the power through his spirit. But where's his spirit? Is it in the concourse? Maybe you grew up with a church that had a lobby. I so far in the country, we had a vestibule. You can't even spell vestibule. And there was one old man that handed bulletins out in the vestibule. Is the Spirit of God in the vestibule? Is he in the baptismal pool? Is he in the Lord's Supper table? Is he in the small group room or down the preschool hallway? We need his Spirit down the preschool hallway, by the way. No. The Spirit of God is in the inner being of a Christian. And this is why God lives in his church. 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. See, we do it together. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of what? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. It always breaks my heart to hear someone with a horror story from a church. Churches make mistakes. People fail each other. But the consistent pattern of a group of people indwelt by the Spirit of God is that they ought to love each other. You say, well, is love the absence of mistakes and struggles and conflict? No, it's the presence of recognizing those things will come and choosing to love each other anyway because of the great Christ we know and serve. He lives in his church. Now, just by way of application, he does not live in his church corporately without living in you individually. I want to make sure, especially for those of you who are guests, that you understand there's a reason we didn't baptize those babies this morning. I have many friends who love the Lord Jesus that are in denominations that practice infant baptism. The theological term is pedo-baptism. I don't have any desire to throw rocks at those denominations. I, I just want to be clear as to what we believe. We believe every one of those children is made in the image of God that every one of those children is loved by God. And heaven forbid when something happens to a small child or a person with mental uh, disability and they can't grasp the love of Christ fully, we believe God's grace covers them. We believe there's scriptural evidence of that. But we also believe that at some point between childhood and adulthood, people come to the realization of their sin. You may have grown up in a tradition that taught the age of accountability. There's no Bible verse that tells us what that age is. I've seen kids develop true conviction of their sin at six and seven and eight years old. And I've seen children in loving Christian homes be 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 and still be wrestling with that. Our journey as a church is to come alongside parents as they lay the gospel before their children, asking their children to trust Christ, but not pressuring their children. We don't force children into decisions that don't have any significance. Some of you got saved as an adult, but you were baptized as a child because you thought it was the right thing to do, and you spent years wondering what was missing. Later in your life, you surrendered to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit truly came to live in you, and you realized He was missing. So we dedicate those children to the Lord, believing and trusting that God will honor the covenant of his people and that upon their faith, their individual repentance in Jesus, we follow what we believe is the best representation of the biblical pattern. We rejoice with them by allowing them to profess their faith publicly through believers' baptism. This is why we were called Baptists. We practice baptism after conversion. And the reason we did this is because the Scripture teaches us that upon salvation, not before, the life of the person is forever changed through the indwelling baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, later in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to really unpack the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to help you see how those work in our lives. I would encourage you to stay with me through this, but, but for this morning's sake, let me just remind you, this means that if you are truly saved, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, which also means that he is working inside of you, alongside of you, to transform you daily into being more like the Lord. 
This is where that conviction comes. If you're disconnected from church, if you're not serving, if there's sin in your life and you know it's wrong, it's off, it's, it, it doesn't feel right, that is the Spirit saying, I've got more for you, sister. That is the Spirit saying, I saved you from that, brother. That is the Spirit not leaving you alone. So it's important for me to nurture a life that is sensitive to the Spirit for two reasons. One, my personal relationship with the Lord is always stronger when I am sensitive to the Holy Spirit. But two, when I am nurturing my sensitivity and obedience to the Holy Spirit, then I'm a better living stone for the church that I'm a part of. I make, by default, my church stronger or weaker to the degree to which I am submitting to the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So your walk does not just matter for you. It doesn't just matter for your spouse or your children or your grandchildren. Your walk either makes us stronger or weaker. Now, I say all that not to put guilt or pressure, but Paul's not mincing words here. He's saying God dwells in you, his presence in the church. And then he offers the most serious warning in the New Testament. I want you to appreciate, thirdly, God's protection for the church. Look what he says. If anyone destroy God's temple, now this is important, God would destroy him. In the original language, the word destroy actually appears something like this. If, if anyone God's temple destroys, destroy God will. In other words, the key point is this. There's no hope for someone who comes against the church. Now, some have said, well, now, I thought that the church will prevail and the gates of hell will not. You've heard that passage, right? That's true. That's talking about the big C church. All God's redemptive people will ultimately prevail. Here, Paul's talking about the local church. He's saying, if you find yourself in opposition to what God is doing in a local church, be very careful. Specifically, most commentators believe he's talking about false teachers, people who come into the church and guide the church away from the gospel. Now, you may say, that's a pretty hard word from God because the word destroy there is related to eternal damnation. In other words, Paul is saying, if you come up against what God is doing in a local church and you attempt to or you destroy it in opposition to God's clear teaching, you're going to go to hell. That's what he says. Because no saved person could do that because the saved person has the Holy Spirit living in them. Now, that doesn't mean that if we are saved and in the church and we come under attack, we have bitterness or anger toward anybody. I released a video this week about abortion, and one of the things I say multiple times is that I, I'm not angry. I'm not mad. There's no place in my life to be angry at someone or to spew vile at them because of their views. In fact, a debate like abortion or a debate like what is a man or what is a woman or a debate like what is right and what is wrong just shows the church who knows the Lord and who doesn't. If you know the Lord, you trust him. If you trust him, you believe his word. His word tells us that every life in the womb is valuable. His word tells us that God has made them male and female. His word tells us that God has given and ordained the gift of marriage for one man and one woman for one lifetime. His word tells us that right is right and that wrong is wrong. And so because I have his word, there's no arrogance 
but there's confidence. Can you imagine trying to raise all these babies in a culture that changes by the minute? The greatest thing I can give my children in a changing culture is a changeless Christ. He does not move, and he is good and rich, and he is for them. Let me tell you about mama. Today's about loving mama. You ought to do that well. But ask any man in this room, what would happen if you touched mama? I, 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 I could tell you it would be very difficult for me to look like I'm your pastor if you touch my mama. Why? Why is it built within every man in this room to protect and defend those in our family? At all costs, we avoid conflict. At all costs, we avoid violence. You touch my wife and see what happens. I'll stand before my God and deal with him on that. I will do everything I can not to break the law, but I promise you it will not go well for you if you touch my mama or my wife. And I believe it's time for the church to have real men who are willing to say that in love and in kindness. See, one of the attacks on women in our culture is eating away at the heart of men to protect and love and serve women. It is a beautiful thing for a woman to give her life to a man and a man to give his life to a woman and for her to nurture him and to care for him and to encourage him and love him and strengthen him, but for him to protect her and to provide for her and to cover her and together the two accomplish so much for the kingdom. This is a good thing. Don't ever, ever think that the attack on gender is not an attack on God. It is. Why, though? Why would nonviolent men, kind men, gracious men, men who are not confrontational, there's no room in the kingdom for a bunch of hotheads or people with filthy mouths or who are quick to fight. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about good, kind, Christ-like men. Why would those men rise up if you touch their mother or their wife? I'll tell you why. We defend what we love. So don't resent God for saying, you destroy my church, I'll destroy you, because that's his wife. Ephesians 5 says it this way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. So that he might present to the church himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Look at all that Christ has done for his church. Of course, he's going to defend her. So make sure you're always on the side of encouraging and nurturing and loving the church. And when someone hates the church, pray for their soul. Don't take vengeance out on them. This verse does not say we have to defend the church. It says the Lord will. Finally, and I'll close, you need to appreciate God's purpose for the church. This is how he closes. He says in verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. Now we think about that word holy and we think of stained glass windows and monasteries and nuns and priests. Actually, the word just means set apart. The church should look different. It should be different. The reason so many churches are anemic and they're powerless is they're going to the culture for their cues. I'm not worried about trying to look like the culture. 
I want us to be a culture in and of ourselves that's so full of love that the wounded and the lost say, I had enough of that. I want some of this. And so the scripture says we are to be set apart and to be holy. Yet again, personal application. The degree to which I can help my church be holy is directly related to my own holiness. How am I setting my life apart? How do I look different in the way that I speak and in the company that I keep, and in the way I spend my money, the way I serve, the way I give, the way I share, my commitment level, my consistency to have my family in church and to be under the word, my service to the church, my love for the church. It's okay to ask your church to be a blessing to you, but it's not okay to always believe that's a one-way street. Rather, you and I should always ask, how am I blessing and encouraging my church? There's a mother in here with a prodigal son today. I may not know your story specifically, but I've seen it played out over and over again. I want to tell you about a prodigal son and his mother named Monica. Like many of the women in this room, she loved the Lord Jesus with all of her heart, and she was dedicated to the church, though she'd had struggles in her own life with alcoholism at one point. She lost a husband. She remarried And the man she remarried had no faith. So she found herself all alone spiritually, yet she believed that God was going to do something to her son. Her son was bright, actually brilliant, made it into his 20s and got involved in a cult and then became enamored with sexual sin and sexual experiences. As his career as a philosopher and a writer began to rise to fame in their culture, she would follow him and pray for him. She would go to her spiritual leaders and weep over his soul. She prayed and prayed and prayed. And finally, in his 30s, having exhausted everything the world said would fulfill him, he gave his heart to Jesus. And he began to walk in the faith of his mother. His name was Augustine of Hippo. He lived 354 to 430 A.D., I recognize that today is not about church history, but I cannot tell you the significance of his theological writings for the early church. In fact, you have the clear gospel today because of church fathers like him who contended for the faith as it was developing. He ministered and led in a church in Northern Africa the rest of his life and on his deathbed, he talked about his mother Monica's love for the church. Remember those two questions? Do you really appreciate the church? And does your church have an appreciation for you? Are you making her stronger? Just like every soul of every child needs a loving mother, every Christian needs a nurturing, loving church. But I can never be a mother to my mother. I could never return to her what she gave to me. The best I can do is to support my wife as she mothers the children that I have. The church is different though. I can be nurtured and spiritually mothered by a congregation and then I can step into that congregation and be a part of nurturing and loving and guiding others. And that is an appreciation for the church.